Рубин. Let's go ahead and stand as we open up. Everybody good tonight? We made it to Wednesday. When we wake up in the morning, good Lord willing, 60 degrees, a good cool shower overnight. Man, I don't know. We might have to set the we may have to get outside and dance in the rain a little bit. Two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Thank you for being with us online. Uh, tonight, we're glad that you tuned in. Let's open up in prayer. How many have a need tonight? You'll just signify by lifting your hand. If you'll uh, comment, we want to pray with you as well. Uh, let's do remember, tomorrow is uh, uh, we're having the funeral for Wanda Bolt. So let's continue uh, lifting up her family uh, in prayer. And again, just so many others that um, just need a touch from the Lord. Carl, um, uh, with Sunday being as crazy as it is, uh, Carl actually is headed to Israel. Uh, he will be. He's uh, he's taking a going to be working over there for a year to eighteen months. So uh, uh, we want to 
lift him up in prayer as he travels over there. And uh, as long as he remembers his way home. <laughs> shawarma, shawarma and falafel. That's going to be your staple. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's pray. Father, tonight we're just grateful, uh, Lord, for your blessings and for your mercy and your grace. Lord, thank you, uh, Lord, just for the privilege that we have to be together tonight and to, uh, to study your word. Lord, there are many places right now that don't even have a copy of your word. Many places it would be illegal to have your word. But, Lord, we do, and we're so grateful for that. And I just pray tonight as we open up, we, 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 would, uh, we don't want to do anything without first saying thank you. Thank you for your kindness and, and your, your generosity and your grace. Just being good. That's, you're good. And, Lord, you've been good to us, and we thank you for that. And I pray tonight for the hands that went up in the building. Lord, it just uh, signifies a need in our life tonight. God, I thank you that you're able to meet that need no matter what it is. I pray for those that need healing tonight. Lord, we still believe in the power of healing. We still believe that you're able to raise up to men, to put back together the brokenness that we, we sometimes suffer in this life. Lord, I pray you'll bring healing to those online tonight. I pray, Father, that you will be in all the ministries that are on campus tonight, that you would be lifted high and exalted in all things that are done. Uh, Father, we pray for revival in our land. Uh, Lord, amidst all the chaos and, and the angst that we see in society today, Lord, we thank you that your peace, uh, you still are the Prince of Peace. And Lord, let peace prevail. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts tonight. Let us hear what the Spirit says to us. We commit this time and service to you now. Thank you for all that you do. And we declare it in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Amen. God bless you tonight. Maybe seated. Go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, while you're turning there, just uh, again, uh, tomorrow is the funeral for Wanda Bolt, and then we will serve lunch uh, to the family. So thank you for helping out in that regard. Uh, also, coming up on, on Sunday is our Fall Family Fun Day, so after the 1045. So, so it's, it is a dress-down day. Uh, you're welcome to wear your favorite jersey if you have a sports team, a high school team, whatever your grandkid plays in. a. You're welcome to, to, to just kind of, it's a fun, family fun day, and the weather's going to be great. You know, when you start talking about Fall Family Fun Day, the weather Sunday is supposed to be fall weather. Uh, I think the high that I saw last was like 76. Uh, that's good. That's good weather right there. Uh, I think heaven is going to be 70 degrees, but we'll do 76. Uh, and so right after the service, we have, uh, there'll be game. we're going to do hamburgers and hot dogs that will be provided by the church. Uh, we're asking each family to bring their chips, you know, whatever you want with your side, chips and, and your drink. Um, and we'll have everything set up out there, and we've got bounce houses for the kids. Uh, we have cornhole, horseshoes, uh, probably some Frisbee, anybody want to do that? I don't know what all, just, just a time of fellowship. That's a, it's a good thing to do that. How many remember dinner on the ground? Anybody ever attend those dinner on the grounds, and you just stayed there all day, and you, you did a little bit of everything? Uh, I don't know if we'll do a little bit of everything, but we'll have stuff out there to do anyway, uh, and it'll be a great day to do that, so that's going on. Uh, on Sunday. Also, don't forget, uh, uh, we continue on with our series on Sunday, Foolproof, um, and we're going to talk about how to not be a fool and to live a life of wisdom. <laughs> so so let's, let's get right into our teaching tonight. We're on this series, Standing on His Promises, and, and tonight we want to look at the promise of forgiveness, the promise of forgiveness. 
Hebrews chapter 10. Now, it's going to be a little confusing initially, the verses that I chose for our text tonight, and I'll, we'll get into it and I'll explain them. But verse 10 and 11 uh, of, I mean, excuse me, 11 and 12 of chapter 10, it says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Let me read that again. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. May Lord add his blessing to his word tonight. Now, so last week we kicked off this series uh, on standing on his promises. And so we, we looked at the promise last week of eternal life. And, and I said, when we're born again, we have eternal life and we are secure in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Remember that eternal life is the present possession of a believer and it is the future hope. So we don't wait, you know, once we are born again, we don't wait for some time in the future to obtain eternal life. We have it right then. Paul even says that we're seated in the heavenly places um, in Christ. So, so again, we looked at eternal life, the promise of eternal life, and, and tonight we're going to uh, kind of stay a little bit similar to the eternal life side of it by talking about the promise of forgiveness. Um, as I said last week, the Bible is filled with great and precious promises uh, from God. And, and, and the thing is, when God makes a promise, it is established upon the eternal character of God. Uh, the, the Bible says not, 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 well, what did Joshua say? Not one of his promises. Every dot, every tittle, no, nothing passes away. It is eternally established. And so when God makes a promise, to, to use the old cliche, that is something you can take to the bank. Those are things you can build your life on. And, and, and again, as, as I just said, as Joshua nears the end of his life, he gathers the nation together, and he's just kind of reminding them of the faithfulness of God. And in reminding them of the faithfulness of God, he just simply says, not one of the promises of God have fallen by the wayside. You know, again, he's wanting them to know, hey, I want you to pay attention to this because when God gives his word, when God gives a promise, it is, it is on his established character, eternal character, in which that promise is made. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not. And that's what Joshua is trying to remind him of. Um, and, and, and so tonight we're going to look at that. Now, every year it's interesting uh, with, with all the online platforms and things that you have today in the age of Internet and Wi-Fi and all this kind of stuff. Each year there are a couple websites that... Uh, that conduct a survey, particularly regarding faith. And, and, and they do these series, the, uh, this, this survey, uh, and they want to find out uh, what Bible verse um, that is searched for the most, okay? So these, these, these programs will do a survey, and they will look at different, different websites to find out what scriptures are being looked at uh, the most. And it's intriguing because when you look at what people search for, how many has ever talked about something near your phone and the next day you open up a social media app and there it is? Uh, or, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of freaky. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's kind of telling when, when you go and look at someone's search history. 
So these surveys are useful. They shed a lot of light on what people are concerned about at any given time. So, so a couple of them, for instance, Uversion, uh, a couple of years ago, reported that the most searched verses in the Bible were Philippians 4.6, 2 Timothy 1.7, and Matthew 6.33. Bible Gateway put John 3.16 uh, as its number one, and then followed by Jeremiah 29.11. And then it goes on to say that six of the top 11 verses uh, come from Psalm 23. Now, the reason I give you those scriptures is when you look up these verses, most of these verses deal with doubt, with fear, with worry, and with uncertainty. Now, think about that for a minute. So, so on these sites, the most searched scriptures have to deal, uh, they have to, uh, again, they deal with the uncertainty that we see in our world today, the fear and the anxiety that we have living in a, in a very confusing time. Um, it, it, and it's not surprising, right? It really isn't surprising. Um, you know, we live in the dark days that Paul said were perilous days. You know, we are living, we are that generation that's living in perilous times. And, and what's interesting is that these surveys that I cited here were conducted before COVID. So you can only imagine <laughs> now how, uh, how people are just strung out with fear and anxiety and you know, you look at the chaos that we have in Washington, D.C., and you look at the chaos, and you, you have elected officials not doing what they were elected to do. And you, Again, it just goes on and on and on. Somebody asked me the other day, you believe that we're being told the truth? No, we're not. Again, I don't mean anything political by it. I just, we live in a world of deception. We live in a world of confusion. Everywhere you turn, there's deceit. Everywhere you turn, there's confusion. Now, we do know the author of confusion, right? And, and, and we see that. And so I would imagine that the same scriptures are being looked for today. People are searching for peace. They're searching for something that will calm that raging, you know, that raging uncertainty that we have. Um, and, and so this is why we studied the promises of God. Again, with all this stuff looming around us, we study the promises of God. We need hope. And that goes beyond the speech of an elected official. We need a promise. We, 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 we need, again, hope that goes beyond what, the promise of an elected official or the promise of a cure for some sickness or disease. We need something more than that. In dark times and in difficult days, we need to hear from heaven. That, that's where we are today in, in our culture, in these dark times, in these perilous times. We need to hear from heaven. You know, and, and again, I, I mentioned this or alluded to a little bit last week, but some have estimated that one in, every four, one in every four verses of the Bible is a promise from God, beginning all the way in the book of Genesis, all the way to the end of Revelation. That equates to about 7,487 promises, as you've heard me say that often. Studying God's promises, what it does is it gives us something to anchor ourselves to. You know, when I was, uh, when I was a boy growing up on the Gulf Coast, with my, my dad, you know, one of the things that we did, we, we, would always, we would often take the boat out into the Gulf. And if we were going to go out into the Gulf, depending on where we went, you know, there were some places out there that you better have a good anchor. If you're going to fish or 
swim or whatever you're going to do, if you're going to go out with a boat and, you know, we had a place not far from the coast of, of, of Mobile called Sand Island. And it was off the barrier reef of Dolphin Island, if you know anything about that part of the country. And, and you could go out there, and most of the time it was just ankle deep. You could get out in it. You could wade. You could, it was just a, a fun place to go. Well, the thing is, you better have a good anchor because it was at the place where the, Mo, the, the Bay of Mobile, Mobile Bay, and the Gulf of Mexico met. And so there were some interesting currents there, and you better have an anchor. That, that's why we study the promises of God, because when we do, when we recognize and hear from heaven, it gives us something to anchor to when our world is falling apart. It gives us something that, that, that's stronger than the current around us. God's promises give us faith in dark times and courage in times of temptation. Learning God's promises gives us direction when we're uncertain of that next step, and it strengthens us to stay the course when we feel like giving up. Again, I, I would imagine we could start over here uh, on my right and go all the way around the room, and, 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 and probably most of us have had times where we've been in a very dark place in our life, uh, maybe through the chaos of life, and, and there's a word from God that's been buried in our heart that, that just kind of surfaced and resonated in those dark times. That's what anchoring in the promises of God does. That's why it's important. That's why the scriptures say, hide the word in our heart. You know, in those times of need, uh, you know, there, there are times when life can get so tough that you, again, even Paul addresses about praying. He said, sometimes you can't even put your words together to pray, but the Spirit will pray through us with utterances that cannot be spoken. When we have the anchor set in the promises of God, the winds can come, the waves can beat and ra ravage against us, but we're, we're firm. You know, D.L. Moody said it like this. He said, let a man feed on the promises of God for a month, and he will not talk about how poor he is. That's, that's pretty good wisdom right there. You know, he goes on and says, people, so you, he said, you hear people say, oh, my leanness, how lean I am. He said, it's not their leanness, it's their laziness. Pretty good. What's he referring to? They're not, they're not tapping into the promises. If you feed on the promises of God, your present circumstances has no weight against you, has no hold. I mean, think about the pro God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the Jews and to the Gentiles and to people everywhere. I mean, just spending a little bit of time meditating on these wonderful promises of God changes a person's disposition. Got a message earlier this week. Sunday uh, was the foundational message of our series on foolproof, and I'd mentioned towards the end of the service one one of the habits of that is a, a very good habit to get into is reading the proverbial wisdom from the scriptures. You know, making a making it a uh, you know making it a daily consumption, if you will, of just reading proverbs. And and so I had a message come in yesterday from a gentleman who was in service, and he said, you know, he said, that was great advice. He said, I started it. And he said, man, this is incredible. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. That's what D.L. Moody says. Feed on the promises of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When we consume it, when we uh, digest and the Spirit illuminates, man, there's nothing against us that will prosper, right? Again, just spending a little bit of time meditating on these promises will change our disposition. When we are daily walking with the Lord, we find riches that the world knows not of. 
Isn't it interesting that when somebody taps into the abundant life that Jesus offers, the things of this world lose its luster? Because there's nothing that compares. You know, and you have all the, have, the haves, and they look at the have-nots and say, how can you be so happy, and how can you be so content? Well, because you've tapped in some riches that the world knows not of. That's what the promises of God will do. It's kind of like the old hymn that we used to sing. Standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, living by the word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. It's still, re- it's still true today. That may be an old hymn, but it still applies to us today. When we stand on the promises of God, fear has no hold on us. Doubt cannot consume us because we have his word. Again, in our text, and I'll read it from a different version, it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. When the priest had all, but when this priest, I like that, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, this passage, of course, is, a reference to the Levitical priesthood or the Levitical system in the Old Testament, and he's describing the duties of an Old Testament priest. Now, again, it can be a little bit difficult, and I know it's a maybe a little difficult to open up as a text, but but he's he's painting us a picture of that old system that was in place for so long. Um, they would bring an animal. Think, think about this. They. The reason it's hard for us to understand is we don't bring an animal uh, with us to sacrifice every week when we come to worship, right? Unless you count Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, the altar. <laughs> you, you do know a belt is just a, it's just a fence around a chicken graveyard, right? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We, we don't bring it. I mean, again, this, the, the old system is confusing for a lot of people. We don't bring an animal to sacrifice every week we go to service. This, basically, this text just lets us know that things are different now. Things are a whole lot different than they used to be. The point of the passage is that in the Old Testament, the, the priest stood because his job was never done. That, that's the point of the passage, at least in, in that first verse. The job was never done. He stood all the time. But Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because his work was finished. There's a contrast there. Uh, Priest stands, Jesus sits. Big difference there. You know, if you go back to the Leviticus and you read that Old Testament uh, religious system, it was a bloody system. That's Again, a lot of people are turned off from reading the Old Testament. I, I would strongly advise against that. I, I know sometimes it can be confusing. My suggestion is before you start reading it, pray about it. Pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That's part of his job, okay? Don't shy away from it because the more we read it, the more revelation we get. God brings it into clarity through the Spirit, and it's important. But when you start looking at the Old Testament system, it seemed like a very bloody uh, system. I mean, think about it. If you were a priest, you would spend a good part of every day killing animals. That's your job. You would kill the animals, you would drain the blood, and in some cases, you would 
splash the blood on the altar. Some cases uh, you would preserve part of the animal for food and then burn the rest. I mean, that all day long, that was your job. Killing, draining blood, burning the carcasses day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And here's the thing. How many ever worked in a mechanic shop before? Anybody? My last job before I went into the, uh, to the military was uh, I, I, right before, about six months before I went into service, I, w- I worked at a carburetor rebuilding company. So what we would do, somebody would come in with their car acting kind of funny and they wanted their carburetor rebuilt. We would take the carburetor off the car. Back then, you know, we don't have, there's fuel injection now, but we'd take off the carburetor and we'd take all the pieces off and put it in a little basket. And we had these cans of chemicals that would clean the carburetor. And we would go and, and put that stuff in the basket and drop that basket in the chemicals and let it sit there for a couple hours and soak and then we'd get it out and then we'd clean it and put it back together again with a kit. The thing about it, I, I, I really got to where I detested that job and, and it was not because of the meticulous nature of the job, it was because I smelled. That chemical smell got in my, it got on my skin, it got in my clothes and it just, it seemed like there was nothing I could do to Get past. I mean, I smelled that smell in my sleep. Ooh, that smell. Oh, there was a song about that. <laughs> so, so think about it. All day long, every day, for week after week, month after month, and year after year, you as a priest killed animals, drained the blood, burned the carcasses, and, and, and no matter how hard you tried to wash it off, you would go home and the smell of blood and burning flesh would be on your clothes. It would be on your clothes. See, that was the system of the Old Testament. If you served as a priest for 40 years, you would have killed thousands and thousands of animals in those 40 years. The blood would have filled, been enough to fill a small lake. And when you died, guess what? Another priest came along to carry on the same thing you had been doing for the previous 40 years. There was no end to it. There was no end to the killing, no end to the bloodshed, no end to the death caused by... Uh, uh, because the religion that God, that, that's what God gave to his people. You go back to Genesis when man sinned against God in the garden and God came looking for them and they said, hey, <laughs> you know, we hid ourselves and, and, and again, the discovery was there. What did God do? God killed an animal to clothe them. He clothed their nakedness or clothed their sin. He hid their sin. That's what it was, the nakedness. There was no end to it. During the 1,500 years from the time of Moses to the time of Christ, think about that, hundreds of thousands of lambs and goats and bulls and, and birds, doves were offered to make, well, but doves weren't to make offer, atonement, but bulls and goats and, and lambs were offered to make atonement for the sins of the people, maybe even millions, maybe even millions. That's what the writer means in our text when he says day after day or again and again. It was the same sacrifices over and over and over again. Exodus and Leviticus described the, the architecture of the ancient tabernacle and, and temple. And I, I've taught through on the tabernacle, I think, two or three times at least. And we went through every piece. And there's a lot of type typology in the tabernacle, all those elements represent something in the gospel. 
we, we've looked at it. Moses writes in great length. He talks about the brazen altar. He talks about the table of showbread. He talks about the candle, the candlestick or the candelabra. He talks about the veil and the furniture that's in the Holy of Holies. But as you look at all of those things, when you walk through the, when you walk through the eastern gate, the first thing you come upon is that, is that brazen altar. And that is the place where the sacrifice is made because you can't get anywhere near God's presence without the sacrifice being made. And then the next thing you would see would be the, the brazen laver. That's where the washing took place constantly. They were to always be washing themselves. And then you moved into the outer court and you had the the, the candelabra, the menorah, you had the, the table of showbread. You, you, you had those elements there, and then you went into the, well, you didn't. Uh, then you had the Holy of Holies where the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were. But there's one thing you will not find in all of that. The altar of incense was in there, the table of showbread, the candelabra, the menorah. You wouldn't find a chair. Moses goes to great length talking about the acacia wood and how the acacia wood was overlaid with gold. God gave great detail and specifications on how everything was to be made. I mean, even down to the minutia of, of, of how it was to be hammered out and who was to do the making and the fabric that covered that, that 70 by 150. He, he was very meticulous. And the colors of the eastern gate, the four colors, uh, again, saw, you could see in the, four, in the four gospels. You could see that in the entrance. You don't find a chair anywhere. See, when the priests were standing before God to minister, they could never sit down. You know why? Because they never finished their work. OSHA wasn't there. EEOC wasn't around. You didn't have mandatory. They, they did not sit down. If you were standing to minister before the Lord, you did not sit down because there was never an end to making sacrifices and offerings before God. It never stopped. Whatever else one can say about the sacrificial system, it was not God's ultimate desire. And the reason I can say that is because the Bible, when it talks about Jesus, said, Behold, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. It was not his ideal system, but that was the system that was in place. From the very beginning, God always planned something better. In chapter 10, where our text is found in verse 1, it tells us that the basically it tells us that the law was a shadow of good things to come. In other words, the, the, the Old Testament system was just a shadow of something better that was to come. Remember, I told you Hebrews is a book about better. We have a better, we have better promises, we have a better sacrifice, we have better covenant. We have a better resurrection, a better hope. All of these things are better. So, so, again, the law, the Old Testament law, was a shadow of something better that would come in what we know as the New Testament. Through the monotonous repetition of blood, death, and sacrifice, here's what the lessons were. The Jews learned they dare not approach God on their own, but through the sacrifice offered on their behalf. That was the lesson. It's the same for us. The Bible says that my righteousness, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And, in, and of our own merit, we could never stand before a holy God. It's not possible. We were born 
with that original sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have no standing before the Lord. It is only because of that next priest who was able to sit down that we're able to stand before God. Uh, Again, think of it like this. Suppose you were a priest in the Old Testament. And and now suppose that you live to be 1,000 years old. And let's just suppose that from the day that you were born to the day you died, you offered a lamb in the morning, a lamb a lamb in the evening. You never missed a day. You never missed a lamb. By the day, by the time that you died, you would have lived. You would have lived three hundred and sixty-five thousand days, and you would have offered seven hundred and thirty thousand lambs to God. That's a lot. Do you know how many sins would have been forgiven? With 730,000 lambs? Zero. Not one. Not one. That's not a whole lot to show for a thousand years of work. Not, a, not, not, not anything to show. See, if animal sacrifices could take away our sin, what sacrifice, I mean, what sacrifice, if, if they could not, What sacrifice would make a difference? See, that's where the question is. If the blood of bulls and goats cannot eradicate my sin or bring forgiveness, what sacrifice will bring forgiveness and make a difference? Hebrews 10, 12 explains it like this, and I love this passage. Verse 12, again, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of of God. So there it is right there. Our salvation hinges on the little but in verse 12. Think about it. On one side stands the priest doing the will of God day after day, week after week, year after year, killing animals for God. Their hands are stained with the, with the blood. It's the same thing every day, all the time. When one of them dies, another man steps up and takes his place and continues with the same thing, always standing, never sitting, never stopping. But then on the other side, on the other side stands one man. His name is Jesus. This little word, but, separates the priest from the Old Testament from Jesus, our high priest. That's a con. Where's my English people? That's a conjunction, is it not? There's a, there's a but there. The Old Testament, this is what they did. They could not sit down. But Jesus, the high priest, changed that. See, that word makes all the difference. After they had done all the killing they could do in accordance with the Old Testament law, it could never take away sin. Jesus did what they could never do. Okay? He sat down because his work was finished. One man paid for sins forever. He finished the work when he died on the cross, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember, the right hand is a place of honor, the highest position. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Again, we all understand this picture. I mean, think of it like this. How many of you... You know, when you, when you work hard all day, you know, anybody have a favorite chair that you sit in at home? Anybody have a, your chair? You know, whether it be a lazy boy or, you know, or, or some sort of recliner or maybe the couch or whatever. 
It did it did nice. So so when I was a kid growing up, my dad had my dad had his chair. It was daddy's chair. And if if you if you were seated in that chair when dad got home, guess what? You got up. Cause dad had been working hard all day and daddy wanted to come home to his chair, take his shoes off, grab his paper and take a nap. <laughs> He'd tell you he's reading it, but he, you know, I've never seen a man read so many books through his eyelids closed. <laughs> That's my daddy. But it was his chair. And, and, and again, so the picture, so when he sat down, what did that mean? When my dad took his shoes off and sat in his chair, it meant, I'm done. And when he's done, don't ask him to get undone. Because he's worked hard. He accomplished what needed to be done that day, and he was tired, and he wanted to sit down and rest. That's kind of, it's kind of a simple analogy of what Jesus did. Jesus came on an assignment, hung on that cross, said it is finished, was buried, three days later resurrected, walked about, seen by people, 40 days later ascended to the Father, and he sat down. He said, Dad, I'm home, and I'm done. I finished it. I accomplished it. And he sat down. Only priest in the history to ever be able to sit down because he finished. See, that's the picture in this verse. Jesus sat down at God's right hand in heaven because the work was finished. When he cried, it is finished, he didn't, make, he didn't, he didn't mean, well, it's almost done. When he, when he said it's finished, he didn't, he didn't mean, well, it's 90% done. See, today we're okay with 90%, right? I mean, you ever notice that we live, you know, today we, I don't want to jump on. Do you ever notice, though, people are just halfway doing things? Oh, well, that's, what do we say? Well, that's close enough. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't live that type of mindset? Well, you know, I'm 90% done, the works of salvation. I'm just about there, but I'm, I quit. He wasn't saying, I've done my part, so now you can do your part. Finished means finished. Absolutely, 100%, period, done. Christ paid the full price of our salvation. That's why he sat down. So, so let me give you three truths about forgiveness. Number one, Jesus did in his death what the Old Testament priests could never do. In his death, he did what the Old Testament priests could never do. The pri- now, listen, the priests were good men. I, I, I hope you're not inferring that I'm dis- any way disparaging them. They were good people. They were doing the will of God. They were accomplishing the will of God. But Jesus did what they could never do. He accomplished, uh, one writer put it like this, he called it a sit-down salvation. I like that. Jesus, see, they couldn't offer that. You, you have to understand, again, the, the writer of, of Hebrews says that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats, to, it's not possible for it to take away sin. So what was the, what was the blood of bulls, bulls and goats? What did it do? It covered. It covered Remember, in the, in, in the Garden of Eden, God covered their nakedness with a sacrifice. That, that, that's all that that did was cover. 
you know, in the in in one of the things they would do on the Day of Atonement, they would they would take a a goat, and the priest would come out and lay his hands on that goat. Nice goat. <laughs> Sorry, I watched a comedian do that. So um, he would lay lay his hands on that goat and confess the sin of the nation on that goat. You ever heard of scapegoat? That's the where the idea came from. They would con- he would confess the sin of the nation on that goat, and then they were to take that goat out into the wilderness, three or four days' journey, so that it could never make its and let it go, so it could never make its way back to the camp. It was a scapegoat. That's what the blood of bulls and goats did. It it covered, it masked sin. It did not forgive sin. But Jesus offers a sit down salvation that's complete and total. It's a total package. You know, sometimes we say things like practice makes perfect. Anybody ever heard that before? It's true in sports. It's true in playing the piano. Many things in life we get better by. I was talking to a young man earlier today and was talking about public speaking. And, and uh, I just mentioned to him, I said, you know, I said, what happens is most people, that's one of their, that's, that's one thing that most people are terrified of. Uh, standing in front of people speaking. And I said, you know, but here's the thing. Once you get past it, once you get, you know, where you, you, you get pretty comfortable in speaking in front of crowds, you know, it's just one of those things you just practice and, and, and you get pretty good at. Um, but here's the thing. Practice may make perfect certain areas of life, but it does not make perfect when it comes to the forgiveness of our sin. We'll never get our sins forgiven by doing something over and over and over and over, like coming to church or saying a prayer or keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not possible. They offered the same sacrifice day after day after day, but it still didn't forgive their sin. When it comes to forgiveness, practice doesn't make perfect because you can't. Number two, nothing can be added to the work of Christ because it's final and complete. That's good news right there. See, this is what Jesus meant in John 19 when he said it is finished. The word means, the words mean paid in full. How many has ever gotten your notice in the mail after you paid off a car? And when that notice is a title and the, the loan paper says paid in full. Isn't that a great feeling? Oh, it's like, man, let's go buy a new car now. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> But, but it's a liberating feeling. Think about how, how incredibly liberating it is to know that we owed a debt that we could never pay. Sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. But Jesus offers a sit-down salvation, and he paid the price and stamped on the invoice of our life is paid in full. How marvelous is that? You know, nothing that we could even remotely do, can, even, can, can add anything to, what G, to, to the value of his death. Lewis Perry Chafer put it like this. He said, believing in Jesus means trusting him so much that if he can't take me to heaven, I'm not going to go there. That's pretty good. Do you have that kind of faith? That the only way we're going to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. There, listen, there is no plan B when it comes to salvation. Jesus is plan A, and truthfully, he's all we need. Said another way, if Jesus' blood is not enough to save me, then the blood of millions of goats and bulls would make any difference at all. 
If the blood of Jesus is inadequate to get me to heaven, then no amount of animal sacrifice is going to make up for it. Not possible. We struggle with this concept because I think today it, it forces us to come to grips with the reality of, number one, that we can't do anything to save ourselves. It, isn't it a sad thing to see people trying to work themselves uh, into heaven? And, and, but the reality is we're confronted. When you, when you start talking about Calvary and the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, how he became the propitiation of our sin, when you start talking about that, how he turned away the wrath of God that was rightly on us, we have to come to grips with like, there's nothing I can do. I can't, you know, that, I guess the second thing is Jesus did it all. That's the reality that we face. Only undeserving people go to heaven. <laughs> Isn't that a, you ever thought like that? Only undeserving people go to heaven, which goes against everything we believe. I, I read a quote from billionaire Michael Bloomberg, and, and it was a quote from several years ago. I, I pray he's changed his mind, but, but it fits with what I'm saying here tonight. Here's what he said, and I quote, he said, I'm telling you, if there is a God, now this is Michael Bloomberg, New York, billionaire. He said, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm headed straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. That's his thought. I've earned it. I'm not even going to stop and say hi. What, what arrogance. Uh, again, we shouldn't be... We shouldn't be shocked at his words because I truly believe that most people think that secretly. Maybe not that, that audacious, but, but I think people literally think that, you know, I've, I've earned the right to be there. I'm a good person. I've never done anything bad. Isn't that right? That's what we hear all the time. Mr. Bloomberg, again, had the audacity to say it out loud, but most people kind of think it. He's wrong. And so are people who think like that. No one can earn their way to heaven. We're all sinners, whether we like to admit it or not. Again, Paul said the, in, in Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do we want to go to heaven? Well, there's five words that will take you to heaven. Only Jesus and only Jesus. <laughs> That's it. And number three, because his work is finished, the promise of salvation is certain. Because we have a sit-down salvation that forgiveness is certain. When reading our text, that's the obvious conclusion. It talked about the priest, how they over and over and over again offered the daily sacrifices and never sat down. But this high priest offered one time for all time, and then he sat down. That's the, that's the conclusion. The priest stood because their work was never finished, and they offered the same sacrifices over and over because sin was never removed. But Jesus, having offered himself as the sacrifice for sin forever, sat down because he finished it. It was done. You know, it's, it's, it, it, again, it, again, it's a sad thing that far too many are attempting to earn their way to heaven by doing good things or being a nice person. The reality is there's nothing we can do to earn his forgiveness. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we find redemption and forgiveness of our sins. I, uh, I mentioned this last week that out of all the, one of the reasons that Christianity, I truly believe, is vilified so much in our world is because all the other 42 or 300 plus religions offer a works based salvation. That means you can work your way 
And if you do the most good and or, you know, all these things, then you stand a better chance. But Christianity is very exclusive. It says you can't do anything to get there. You can't give enough money. You can't do this. You can't, you, you can't be. Uh, now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't give, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be good people. Though there, there are other things, the fruit of the Spirit. There are other things that come into play there. But to get to salvation, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what he did. The prophet Micah Ask a profound question. I think he's contemplating this thing called salvation. And, and, and here's what he asks. In Micah 7, he says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgressions? Good question, right? Did, I, I mean, you know, we could take that and develop it quite a bit, but I mean, who is a who's, No other God... In, in the world religions, offers the, the, offers the salvation that God, the only true God, offers us. I saw a, a History Channel show one time. It's been several years ago, and I forget. It's in South America. It's a, it's a, there's a, a country down there, and they have an annual festival to their God, whatever he is, uh, whoever they are, whatever. And, and one of the things that they do, they, all the priests of that particular religion they walk barefoot with, with loincloths, and as they walk, they stop every so often and they lash themselves. They beat themselves. And, they, and by the time they get to where they're going, blood's gushing down their back and their legs. And that's to appease their God? Listen, he was bloodied for me. He spilt his life's blood so that I wouldn't have to. They're trying to earn what he freely gives. You know, God sent his son to die on the cross, and then, and, and then he says to the whole world, I mean, again, who can find a God like that? Who delights in showing mercy to sinners. He loves to forgive sinners and give them eternal life. God sent his son to die on the cross, and then he says to the whole world, anyone who wishes to take advantage of salvation, come. Whosoever will, let him come. Where can you find somebody like that? Remember, grace is freely given and freely received. It's not merit-based. We don't get more grace if we act different from others. Grace is, you know, and again, another mental block that I think a lot of people have is we tend to look at somebody that we would call super spiritual and we, we tend to think they have more grace than what we have. No, we, they're, they're, grace is grace. Grace is given to all. Unmerited, unearned favor. It's without merit. God bestows his grace upon us. That is how we are able to claim salvation through Christ. Again, remember all other world religions are work-based salvation. At the end of your life, you hope that you've done enough good deeds to offset the bad deeds so you can go to heaven. I don't want to live like that. I want to know in my knower that when I draw my last breath, see, when I, when I do that service tomorrow for Wanda, Wanda for a long time has been a strong believer. I don't even know how many years. When, when Charles was in Vietnam, wounded twice in Vietnam, she was a believer. 
when they were stationed in Germany. She was a believer. In fact, Tammy was telling me uh, that mom always made sure she, they were in church. I'll tell this story tomorrow, but I, I, I found it very interesting. She said one day when they were camping, uh, Charles had been deployed, and she said one day we were camping in Germany, and it came for Sunday, and, and mom always made sure we were in church on Sunday. She said, so we packed up and went to a local German church. She said, of course, it was German Catholic, and it was in German, and we didn't understand anything going on, but we were in church because mom said we had to go to church. <laughs> Listen, God, i, I got to wrap this up. All that's through grace. God doesn't demand that. God's not some Santa Claus up there who makes a list and checks it twice and says, you deserve more than this one over here deserves. Because the truth of the matter, if God kept a list of all the sins, how many would really end up in heaven? Again, this concept is very foreign to us, but God is gracious. He's forgiving. When Moses, I'm going to close with the story, when Moses goes up to the, and again, you can see it all through the Old Testament, even though it was a bloody system, God was a God of grace and mercy. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to, to, to get the Ten Commandments, remember that story? And he goes up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments to receive God's law, but before he ever came down, they had already broken the law. I mean, before he ever got to the top of the mountain, they had already broken the laws of God. Moses, in his anger, what does he do? He breaks the tablets. But you know what he does? He intercedes for the people and asks God not to destroy them. Moses goes back up the mountain, and while, the, uh, while he's up there, the nation is waiting for God's verdict on what he's going to do. Would he destroy them, or what would he do? When Moses, when God, uh, when what God did at that point is God revealed to Moses that he is a God of grace and a God of mercy. You know, we often wonder if God could forgive someone who has sinned like we have. And I think that's a battle for a lot of people that I'm closing. A lot of people battle, God, could you ever forgive me for that? It's a battle most people struggle with, but God has revealed his character, and his character is that he is a God who is long-suffering towards us, who is full of grace and mercy. And again, understand this was, when God revealed himself to Moses as, as a God of grace and mercy, this was after they had broken the law. God promises forgiveness to those who call out to him in repentance and contrition. There is no sin that he's unable to forgive. Now, I know the, un, the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but I'm talking about the other, there is no other sin that God cannot forgive. None. While we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. See, this is the proof. If you want to talk about the promise of God, the promise of forgiveness, the proof is while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That's the promise. And the promise is the eternal life that we talked about last week, that if I would accept, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If I acted in faith on what he has done and it received it, my sins are forgiven. The Bible says they're thrown as far as the east is from the west. Again, it's amazing that he would die for us because without any guarantee, he did it anyway. Without ever thinking 
Uh, again, God has all foreknowledge, but I'm just saying God, there was, I had to accept what he did. But before I ever accepted it, he went and paid for me and for you and for you because he loves us that much. It is finished. The price has been paid. Won't you stand with me? There's a song that we used to sing. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find me in thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thee. Thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Aren't you glad for the promise of forgiveness? You know, we talked about 1 John when we studied that a few, months, a few weeks back. John said that, If we confess, he's faithful and just to do what? To forgive and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? I I, want to close out this way, and maybe you're online tonight, and and, and this is where you feel, but maybe you're here tonight, or maybe you're online, and you say, you know what, I do struggle with the concept of forgiveness. You know, the idea of just saying, Jesus, forgive me, without requiring something from me. It's foreign to me. Well, that's grace. Now, now, once we receive forgiveness, he told the woman, he said, go and sin no more. But that grace was freely offered to those who asked. So when I, when I confess, he's faithful and he's just and he will forgive. And he will cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. I don't have to struggle with it. I don't have to be guilt-ridden with it. And I know the enemy's done a very good job in modern culture to keep people locked in those prison, the prison of guilt and shame over things that have been done and, and mostly things that have already been confessed. Maybe you're here tonight and you struggle and say, Pastor, you know what? I, I need to accept that forgiveness that Jesus offers. I struggle with it. I wrestle with it. I feel the guilt that you talk about and the shame from time to time. I want to accept what he's done. I want to stand in the forgiveness that he offers me. If that's you online, if you'll comment, we want to pray with you. If that's you tonight, anybody here, just slip in right right back down. I'm willing to pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, tonight I thank you so much. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that in and of ourselves there's nothing that we can do to have eternal life. There's nothing that we can do to find forgiveness except come to you fall on your grace and your mercy. And tonight we do that, Lord. We thank you that you are a gracious God and you are a merciful God. And we thank you that you extend forgiveness, Lord. I pray for those that are struggling tonight with with guilt, Lord, and, and shame of things that have been done in the past and things that have already been confessed. Lord, I pray that 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 battlefield of the mind, Lord, that you would let your, let faith rise up. Lord, you raise up a standard against the enemy that shoots those guilt 
those, those fiery darts of the wicked one. Lord, use, raise up that faith. Raise up that standard against the enemy that would try to seize us and hold us in doubt, to tether us to the past. Lord, help us to find forgiveness, not from you because you freely give to those who confess and are, are, are contrite of heart. Help us to forgive ourselves so that we can move forward in receiving the abundant life that you came to give. Now, Father, I ask you to go with us tonight. Give us a great night, restful night. Should you tarry, may we wake up in the morning with a spring in our step, a song in our heart. Should you tarry, Lord, bring us on Sunday. I ask you to bring people from the north, the south, the east, and the west that need an encounter with you and even now ordain what you're going to do. I love and bless each one now in the mighty name of Jesus. And we all said, amen, amen. Thank you for being with us online. I look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you, and I love you very much.